0: You're listening to Buildipedia, your go-to podcast for everything you need to know about property. By covering the entire journey from buying your home through to design, building, selling and everything in between, we'll help you fill in the blanks and bring your property vision to life.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Buildipedia. Joining us today is Andrew Durbridge. Structure engineer and director of Partridge in Sydney, Partridge Engineers. Andrew has been a project director, many high-end projects. We've had many near run-ins. We know lots of people in common, but long-time employee number seven of, of uh, Partridge. Um, 15, Andrew, welcome. 15. <laughs> 15. All right. Well, I upgraded you. <laughs> welcome to buildopedia Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to be here and and be part of the fun. Thank you.
1: So, Andrew, in the tradition of of an inspiration of the week today, we've got an anti-inspiration, which is something a bit different for Builderpedia. The most uninspiring thing of the week is Heverwick's vessel in New York in Hudson Yards. And I've read an opinion piece, which I think was bang on, about this structure which cost 200 million dollars to build and unfortunately for one reason or another it, the purpose of the structure is unknown it's a it's a series of stairs and viewing platforms that kind of go nowhere and it became synonymous with people taking their lives and closed very soon after and has as far as i know remained closed for 2 years and no one Really knows what to do with it, so that's my anti inspiration Have you have you heard of this, Andrew? No,
0: you, you were telling me about it earlier. It's not, not hasn't crossed my um, in desk uh, inbox, I should say. But yeah, it's uh, as you were saying. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time a structure got built um, and uh, <laughs> was was put, was put to different purposes afterwards. That's it's a little bit dark and black out there, but uh, yeah, as you say, I'm, I'm uninspirational.
1: And yeah, I mean, a real showpiece of bad planning and someone's idea without consultation, without any sort of feedback. And I mean, an incredible and elaborate structure, a sort of honeycomb wild sort of thing. But, and I, I read an opinion piece about it this morning and um, it's Yeah, I think the the architectural community is scathing of the way it was conceived, the way it was built, the money that was spent, $200 million on a 20-storey something.
0: Was there something about it that resonated with you that reminded you of a similar occurrence in Australia? Is there there something we've had down out here which which has gone along similar lines and and, and been equally uninspiring?
1: I mean, I find probably Crown casino and tower very uninspiring and i thought it was just from the outside but then i went inside and equally uninspiring lots of very expensive finishes just applied in odd ways no expense spared and yet like um someone said i don't know who it was you can't money doesn't buy good taste <laughs> so yeah, it did remind me of that. But this is different because it's so, lots of buildings fail, right? And fail for various reasons. But this is a different sort of failure. Like it's a, it's not like it's, we're presuming it's structurally sound and it's quite a remarkable, striking building of sorts. But um, just a, a really dark, like you said, very dark and very odd, failure of planning really in many ways it's yeah it's become a real it's going to be demolished probably from the sounds of it or repurposed as a i don't know the giant fishbowl i have no idea what you would do of it but um anyway so andrew we um before we start talking about your career in in engineering you're the chairman and director of the scotch malt whiskey society I thought that might come up. That is what I am maybe as much interested, if not more, than engineering. So tell us more.
0: I always make a joke about this, but I think when you spend your working day working with builders, architects, and and other engineers, you get to the end of the day and you you need a strong drink. And uh, yeah, whiskey was my... um, I became a passion at the end of the day. I think think, uh, certainly when I went through engineering, there was a bit of a beer culture. Uh, There was a rite of passage about enjoying anything made from barley, yeast and water. And uh, at an early age, uh, the the man who would go on to be my father-in-law introduced me to single malt scotch and uh, I just embraced it, (laughs) which sounds terrible on the surface. But what I mean was that I really got involved in not just it's a, a you know appreciating whiskey, but but learning about it. Uh, I've I've gone on to be a brand ambassador for many single malt brands. I regularly host whiskey tasting uh, events and whiskey appreciation nights. I do whiskey education with the the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and it's always just a, a passion and an interest I've had on the side. I think I think every person has their hobby. Mine just happened to be um, single malt Scotch. I couldn't tell you who won at the races on the weekend or. Um, what the latest engine is underneath the, the the bonnet of a Holden, but I, I can tell you an awful lot about Scotch and that was just, just something I, I got into.
1: And the thing that I really want to know is how do I become a brand ambassador for a Scotch or maybe a rum or something? i oh, tell you how all,
0: that... once upon a time it was really hard. You had to do a big apprenticeship and you had to know your subject backwards and you had to be able to stand in front of a room and talk to 100 people. These days, you, you just take a fancy shot of a bottle, post it on Instagram, and suddenly you're an influencer and, and all the PR firms come racing to you. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, right. So, you're a whiskey influencer. And- what is the difference, so, so are there other whiskey societies other than the Scotch Malt whiskey society? I mean
0: absolutely. I mean, um are is an all a very broad encompassing uh, church, you know, from single malt scotch to blended whiskey, bourbon whiskey, Japanese whiskey. Here in Australia on our own doorstep, we have a, a thriving Australian whiskey industry. and each one of those subcategories, if you like, has a its own little fan club and and organisations of and groups of enthusiasts who, Make it happen, and, and people in the industry. And uh, I think you can look at any topic, whether it's stamp collecting, cars, horse racing, whiskey, beer, wine, whatever. There's there's always circles that like minded people who gather together to um, enjoy and appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and 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 the the more time they spend together, the more they appreciate it. I guess certainly uh, in booze circles, I've noticed that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and when so I we did tell you that as a condition of being on this podcast, you were inviting me to the next tasting.
0: Absolutely, yeah. We've we've reserved a seat for you in the front row. Um, (laughs) We're going to pour out the good stuff for you first and give everyone else the bad stuff. So yeah, look forward to it. It'll be great.
1: All right. Sounds great. So you were telling us about beer and and engineering days and and uni days, I think you were referring to. And so I guess I wanted to go back even further and, and understand where your engineering journey started? Where where did you begin? Like, Did you always want to be an engineer as a kid?
0: Yeah, look, I, I think there's some people in the construction industry and certainly in engineering who have those wonderful origin stories and can tell you about the amazing person who inspired them. Um, my journey into engineering is the most pathetic, boring tale, and it's, there's nothing inspirational about it at all. I was in year, t- year 10 or year 11 at school and, and you had the compulsory session with, uh, I guess what they call the careers guidance counselor. And uh, you had to spend half an hour with, with him and I walked into his office and he said, well, what do you wanna do when you leave school? And I said, I've got no idea. And he said, what subjects are you good at? And I said, "I oh, know maths, physics, English. And he said, well, you should be an engineer then. And I went, okay, <laughs> I'll be an engineer. And that was it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a terrible story.
1: And you know, he or she nailed it.
0: And well, he did, I suppose. I can't say there was any bolt of lightning moment or, or, you know, road to Damascus moment. I, I did my HSC. I, I went straight into uni. I went to Sydney Uni, did my four-year degree, spat out the other side, and, and went straight into the workforce, and haven't stopped since. So yeah, that that's the journey to, uh, to at least get the piece of paper and, and, and get stuck into into the workforce. And in hindsight, was that the right advice? You. Oh, for me, no, no regrets, certainly from a career point of view and, and, and how I got into it. Sometimes I think it might have been nice to have, you know, done the, the, the gap year or to have uh, gone overseas and maybe spent a bit of time over there. but I, I, you know, I don't, don't think you can look back and regret too much. All the decisions I made led me to where I am today, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with where things turned out. I've been privileged to work with some wonderful people, work on uh, some wonderful projects get introduced to some fantastic builders and architects in Sydney and, and, and other engineers. And, um, you know, perhaps those doors may not have been open to me if I would decided to spend a year or two working in the UK or traveling or doing something else.
1: We'll come back to your gap year, which, which <laughs> I think is coming up. But I thought I'd ask about early inspiration and, and role models in your career. Yeah, look, I, I, in that respect, I don't think I'm too different to most other
0: structural design engineers, and you know that's what I classify myself as. I think if you do an engineering degree in in Australia, most of us come out with a what's officially a civil engineering degree, where civil engineers and and structural engineering is a, is a, a sub discipline of that that broad church. So you know you go to uni for four years and you learn about hydraulic engineering, geotechnical, geological, structural, project management, all those sorts of things, and, and I for one reason or another, sort of fell into the, the structural path that I ended up going down. But like most graduates, you, you leave uni, you get you get your first job. And it's really those first couple of years with the first firm that you work for that tremendously shapes where you go and, and your approach to the industry, how well you're mentored. I spent four and a bit years working for a, a firm that did some pretty interesting and varied stuff, which was great. But they were very dependent on on one client and that clients workflow looked like reducing tremendously so after four and a half years i moved on to another firm called ashby doble in in sydney's eastern suburbs and to, to answer your question about you know inspiring people uh jeff doble was the owner of the business there and uh Jeff's actually jeff and his son scott doble are just wrapping up the business at the moment after many many decades in practice and, and jeff was uh Jeff, I, uh, I, I worshipped him for uh, six months to a year thinking he was this amazing, wonderful engineer who just seemed to know everything. And I, and I found it down the track that uh, officially he wasn't an engineer. He, he'd actually trained as a draftee. And he was a really, really fantastic draftsman who'd just been in the game long enough to just know things. And, um, you know, we'd be trying to design something that was complex. And he'd just take one look at the drawings and go, oh, I, I think that's going to be a, a 310 universal beam. Go away and do the numbers, Andrew, and I'd go off and do the counts for an hour and a half and come back, and he was right every time. So uh, Jeff was fantastic in that regard, but not just for his technical prowess, but also instilled in me a tremendous work ethic, ability to have empathy with you know with your clients and understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think as, as engineers, you have the power to bring a lot of um, value to a job and to you know steer the way things go and, and, and affect budget in so many ways. And he really instilled that, that deep value about taking pride in your work and delivering the best you can deliver. And, as you know, despite the fact when I joined Ashby Diablo, and I only had, as I say, four and a half, five years under my belt, I was never treated as a, as a junior or someone who they'd they lock you out of the boardroom. Um, I was given tremendous insights into the business, the, the nature of actually running a business. You had a fantastic conversation with David Moses a couple of weeks ago on, on this one, and, and David made the point about how there's a big difference between a couple of builders who, who are, are, you know, builders and tradies against someone who's actually running a business. And um, yeah, to, to that extent, Jeff just gave me tremendous insight into not just being an engineer, but running a business, being a business owner. And that set me up very nicely for what, what followed after that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I can relate to that. I mean, I was I was lucky enough to join, um, I don't know if you know that, but I, I worked with Chris Youngkin for a,
0: yeah, I, yeah, I, I've got a, a job uh, on the go with Chris at the moment, but I, I was aware that was on your CV, Yeah,
1: yeah. When I joined Chris, I mean, he just moved to Sydney from the Snowy Mountains, and he literally, I walked in an off into an office where there was three people, but only two computers, and the computers weren't even connected to each other, let alone the internet. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. But that was a really great experience because able to launch into helping him build that business and and organize the business you know so and that's that's invaluable experience and you know chris was a carpenter and a great like very good tradesman a very good site man very good builder but he needed a lot of help to organize and i kind of had to improvise <laughs> because i i was a graduate <laughs> but that was an incredibly uh powerful learning experience but um So how did you end up at Partridge and employee number seven or number 15, as (laughs) it turns out?
0: (laughs) I ended up spending four and a half, five years with with Ashby Doble and and had a fantastic time there. But by that stage, I'd been out in the game for for nine or ten years and and I got the itch that a lot of engineers get. Uh, Most of our work at Ashby Doble, was high-end houses. It was occasionally a three- or four-storey low-rise apartment building, a bit of council work. And as much as I loved it, I'd I'd been in the game for nine, ten years by now, and you get that itch to know what it's like to work on on high-rise. You want to find out what it's like to work on a 20-storey building or or something like that. And I felt that at that point I'd chiefly been working on small stuff, not easy stuff, I I hasten to add. Uh, My experience has been some of the smaller jobs are are some of the most complex and and technically challenging. So that just that desire to, to maybe work on some bigger stuff and also get onto the other side of the Harbour Bridge. I, I was living on the north and, and working on the east and that meant having to cross the Harbour Bridge every day and, and that started to become painful. So I was wanting to move onto the north side and uh, yeah, work on bigger things. And I ended up joining uh, the fabulous team at, at Vandermeer, Vandermeer Bonzer as they were at the time and they're, they're VDM these days. Still a great, great bunch of guys and a, a and fantastic uh, business. But it was a tremendous experience for me because I, I, I lasted a year It was a great year because it taught me that I didn't want to do tall buildings. I got thrown uh, in the deep end in a a couple of projects. It was just an altogether different level of busyness, intensity. I really enjoy working with architects and collaborating with architects, and we found in the space that I was in at that time with VDM, we were doing a lot of D&C work for builders. And you didn't really get to collaborate with the architect as much. You weren't being particularly creative. What you were doing was churning away, trying to come up with a a cheaper system so that the builder who wanted on a certain price could maximize their profit. And I can't say I enjoyed that too much. So I lasted about a year and then thought I needed to get back to small stuff. And that coincided at exactly the same time that Harry Partridge of of Partridge uh, put an ad in the paper saying, wanted junior director. And at the time, I think Harry was looking to, to wind down. He was maybe keen to travel a bit and uh, the timing was perfect. So at, at the time, um, Vandermeer's office and, and the Partridge office was just 60 metres down the road in St. Leonard. So I um, walked out of one office and went down to the next, became employee number 15 at the, at the time. and um, A junior director, no less. Yeah, well, by the time that happened, I, was, I had 10 or 11 years under my belt. As as it was, I, I really, I think it was a bit of a glorified term. I was a senior engineer there for, for a couple of years and then eventually took equity in the business and worked up from there.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when you joined, was Nick Unites there? Indeed. And in fact, he, he still is. He still is. So yep. he Nick designed my house 15 years ago. Right. Himself. There you go. So I know Nick, we did a lot of work when I was at Youngkin. initially, we did a lot of work with Chris Rouse as well. Yeah. And, of course, I know Guy Barwell. I don't know if he's still there, but, uh, yeah.
0: No, Guy Guy left uh, a, a bit over a year ago now to set up his own own business. But, yeah, no, Nick, Nick's a, a fantastic engineer and obviously an extremely experienced and knowledgeable guy. With, with
1: Oh, he was deck. very good. He was very good. Like he, he just made things work.
0: Yeah, About 10, 15 years ago, he shifted his focus a little bit into remedial engineering and he's uh, very much front and centre of of Partridge's remedial business now, which is, you know, really looking at fixing defects and and project managing uh, particularly a lot of strata buildings that are, you know, dealing with concrete cancer and leaking balconies and that sort of thing. So uh, he he heads up our team that's that's doing that. But um, just starting to slow down. I was chatting with Nick just the other day and he was, Making noises that he, he might start to scale things back a little bit, but he's earned that right, being where he is and he's in his, in his uh, stage of life.
1: Yeah, yeah, I found Nick incredible and very generous with time, and just just very very good. But um, and then I I worked with um Rob McGowan for a while at uh, on a project, and of course he's started his own offshoot, not offshoot officially, a of partridge, but you know his own business structure. So, yeah, Partridge, there's a lot of connection. Partridge seem to train and, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, look, it, it, it's funny. Uh, there's a certain playground that's out there in, in, in what I would call the high-end housing area, you know, the, the architecturally designed houses. And there's, there's probably, I don't know, maybe four or five consulting firms that, that play in that space and, and we all know each other very well. We all get on with each other very well. And when you're in that playground, you tend to, stay in that playground and so because partridge is is very much in that space uh we've had a few people come and go and move from one place to the next and but stay in that playground but you know it's a structure uh the boys there who, who you know we, we all get on with very well and we should because i think they're a team of seven and i think six of them are ex-partridge so um uh, <laughs> yeah
1: <it's, laughs> i guess we're because i from working with chris young can, Twenty years ago, I've only ever worked in high-end architecture or, or, or architectural construction, really. And now we've, we've got a team of architects in our office. But um, I just feel like I've done so much work, and I wonder if you feel the same way that you can almost get a sense for the architecture. You could kind of know it and you feel it, and you like I feel like I've done an architectural degree. By stealth, and I can detail. Even though I've got, I'm a clunky old builder. The registered architects in our office still come to me with design problems and detailing. And yeah, you get a you get a knack for it, I think.
0: You, you do, but you'd probably agree with me that uh, you don't develop it overnight either. It comes from years at the coalface. It comes from getting your hands dirty. Certainly, being on the tools. I've learned so much from, you know, working with more experienced and more senior engineers. I've learned heaps from architects who've, who've been at the game and have seen what works and what doesn't work, and, and learned some tricks. And more than anything else, I think certainly in, in my line of work, which is certainly high end housing, the things you just learn chatting to the builders. I say to the young guys at our practice, if, if you walk onto a construction site and you're there to inspect something like, a, you know, a slab on ground or a reinforcement check, and, and all you do is walk in look at the Rio, sign off and walk off again, you've robbed yourself of an opportunity. You really should have a chat with the foreman, have a chat to the guys there. Start a dialogue. They, they can just teach you so much and, you know, find out about, hey, guys, when you, when you were preparing this slab, what were the challenges? Was there something on our drawings that you struggled to interpret? Did, did we draw something in 2D that was really hard for you guys to build in 3D? And, you know, as you, as you make your way up from the footings right up to the last gutter up on the roof, there'll be something somewhere along the way that you can learn how better to detail something, how better to connect it so that it's easier, more efficient, lighter, cheaper, you know, easier for everyone. And I think that's where a bit of experience over time um, comes to the fore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, I feel like I could, um, maybe not not to a compliant level, but I kind of know it like, yeah, you get to know over time enough that, like maybe not technically compliant, but I know what steel goes into things. I can get it to a level where I know it's not going to fall over. Maybe it's not technically right, but yeah, you do absorb that. And I think it is little bits at a time that you're not even aware of. And I just I remember a few occasions where I remember one I won't name the Arctic, but I I got tired of waiting for a form ply set out, and I did it myself. And I sketched it and I sent it to them and I said, this is what we're doing. And of course, if you ever want an architect to jump on something quickly, just draw it and tell them how you're going to do it. And then they'll react very quickly. But they got angry and said, no, nah, you got it all wrong. And, he, and they redrew it. And I'm like, okay, but is the owner paying for like five meter sheets? Like, what are we? <laughs> and of course, they redrew it again. Because the owner wasn't going to pay for whatever and the sheets weren't available that in the imaginary dimension that they had, and they redrew it, it was exactly the same as my drawing. Yeah, yeah. well, oh, look, it's funny, you, you,
0: you certainly pick up a lot by osmosis and, and, and repeat application, and certainly in, in architecture at the moment, at the, the pointy end of, of high end housing, certain things become I don't want to be dismissed as saying flavor of the month, but you know, there are certain architectural features and looks that you know suddenly become fashionable and everyone's doing them and uh yeah if, if you're paying attention you, you you can get ahead of the curve sometimes and um and make suggestions or add a bit of value and, and sparkle to something you know you you go into these meetings now you know straight away that there'll be a, a set down for the wet area so there's flush floors you know that the glazing no one's going to want a column in the middle of their dining room yeah, <laughs> just really simple things like that but there's a lot going on. And as you say, when you've been doing it for a while, all of a sudden everyone seems to be speaking the same language, which
1: is good. Yeah, but just don't tell architects that they're doing something that's fashionable or in any way on trend because they don't. I don't know if you've ever had this discussion, but we had a big blow up in our office because I was asked by a local magazine to put something in on upcoming trends for the summer or the spring. Or... <laughs> and. order. uh I was like, can we do this? We're a creative company. We can set some trends. We can look at, and it's like, no, 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 no. We're serious architects. Architects don't do trends or fashion like we're. And I'm like, bullshit. We all, but fo- they all follow each other like ducks. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I don't know. It's a, it's a funny thing because it is very much trends and fashions of the day. And yet they're all in denial that. They're all like, no, no, we do original. No, we we're classic. We, I don't know what, I don't even know what they there's said.
0: Possibly, there's two sides to it because you know, depending on the architect in concern. But for most part, we're employed by the homeowner. It's the homeowner, the clients who who saw something on Grand Designs or they saw something on Instagram and and you know that's what they that's the look they want and they go to their architect and say, hey, can you produce this for me? I saw an off form concrete house. I, I want to do off form concrete. And I don't know whether it's the, the clients out there, the homeowners that are driving that or, um, as I say, whether it's particularly flavor of the month, but, you know, we've seen a massive spike in um, the number of off-form concrete houses coming through the design office at the moment.
1: The last batch of concrete houses before we can't build them anymore. <laughs> well, there's
0: a yeah, well, the dialogue going on about that at the moment, isn't there? Uh, quite right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Getting Flushing it through the system while you can. Yeah. And I guess one thing I wanted to ask you is, because this is something I've noticed and and again it's that that sort of repetitive experience of dealing with different people at different times and different projects. I think there's a huge vari or great variability in skill, and in every way, structural engineers vary so much in their abilities. I think the variance is is massive. And I guess that there is an element of what well, you model it with a computer, and yet the output, the outcome, the responsiveness—I guess there's so much variability. It's incredible, and because I think, and the reason I'm raising it is because most people presume that whichever engineer they go to, they just get the same thing, right? It's just pretty. It's a compliant. It's a modular kind of system or process. It's very defined. It's regulated. But I'm kind of going, no, actually, there is a lot of difference from one engineer to the other, both in the amount of money you're going to spend on the structure, but also the outcome in terms of design. Like It's night and day, I think.
0: Oh, look, uh, uh, 100%. You're you're absolutely right. And that's one of the great tragedies, I think, and and injustices in our our profession in that as you say, everyone thinks, "Oh well, if you give the same problem to five different engineers, they're all going to come back with the same answer, and no they won't, and no they shouldn't it's <laughs> It's not a commodity, and look, I think the engineering profession is like any other profession you you get your broad range of personalities you any any profession attracts the diverse range of community um, and you get your people who are more left brained, you get your people who are more right brained, you get those who are you know, very diligent and disciplined and chase the rabbit down the hole. You, you get those who might be a little bit lazier and just turn to a, a design table to, to do it quickly. I touched on it earlier, but I think the type of engineer you, you become is very, very much influenced by your early years in, in the profession and who mentors you and, and what, good habits or bad habits they teach you and then you know you, you throw all that against how your business operates there are consulting firms out there who have models um actually i'll back up one step but you know what a lot of people may not appreciate is that at the end of the day most engineering consulting firms are time-charged businesses we don't buy a product apply a markup and, and sell it on at retail we're, we're not builders who buy the materials, put up something big and, and add a margin, you know, we, most engineering firms earn their money by charging for their time. And so depending, and every business has a different way, a different business model that applies for that. So one of the issues we, we struggle with a lot is, and let's give an example here. So Mar and Park Kettle want to put a first floor addition on, they go to an architect, architect says, right, well I'll get you three quotes from three engineers and, and income three quotes, five thousand, ten thousand, and twenty thousand dollars. And the great, as I say, the tragedy and injustice is that a lot of the mums and dads look at the, the three different quotes and go, oh, well, I'm gonna get the same product, surely my house will still stand up at the end of the day. So why is that guy charging twenty thousand and that guy five thousand? Surely it's the same thing, I'll I'll go for the five thousand dollar consultant. And that just that what that thinking really puzzles me. and I don't understand why people think that way. You look at how consumers approach any other thing. If you went to a buying agent and said, I want to buy a car, come back with three quotes, and someone came back with a $20,000 car, a $40,000 car, and a $60,000 car, you inherently know that you're getting three different products there. You inherently know that it's not the same thing. If you were seeking elective surgery and and you went to your gp and your gp got three quotes from specialists and they varied hugely you would interrogate and ask why those prices are different and yet when people look at three different engineering quotes they they don't apply that same logic they tend um, not to question well why is that guy charging more and and certainly for the businesses i've worked for we've always had that attitude of charge a, a, a fair fee and then that fee gives you the time to spend on the job and and if if you charge more that's your signal to the client that i'm actually going to sharpen the pencil i'm going to chase the rabbit down the hole i'm not just going to lazily turn to a design chart or do something i've done before or call up a blanket specification and so if you're dealing with a one of the companies who has a different business model where they charge a very very low design fee up front that's probably a reflection that they're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about the job and they're probably not going to produce a lot of drawings and a lot of details. And some, you know, there's a few people out there who have the model of of charging a low fee up front and then they make the money back up on on site. So, you know, they produce drawings, put very little detail into it. And, uh, you know, builder gets on site and then suddenly finds there's no information on how part E connects to part B and, and how do I get this to work. And so they call the engineer, the engineer comes to site and starts charging by the hour to do everything that they really should have done up front. And so at the end of the day, the, the clients then end up paying the same amount of money for the engineering fees, if not more, because by that stage, you know, the builders had to stop work to, to reach this point. There may well be a variation because they've now got to go off and source something that wasn't on the original drawings. So yeah, there's a lot of different models out there. Engineers approach things differently. But at the end of the day, I think you're dealing with personalities that variability comes through with who you're dealing with and how they go about their work
1: yeah and i found that um also a bad engineer it's not even sorry not a bad engineer a la- i should say a lazy engineer can cost you tens of thousands of dollars because oh, for sure. it, 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 and people don't perceive that so that like that saving we don't normally have that range of quotes that I've, i haven't you know doesn't if, if there's a multi-factor difference, then probably yeah, some questions need to be raised about either the the uh, higher price or the lower price. But I guess yeah, for a few thousand dollars saving, I've seen people go for. I won't mention the engineering company. It wasn't Partridge, I'll say that, but uh and it wasn't Structure. Either it's all right, guys, just hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so another company that I, I won't name, and and I've looked at, and they had these kind of um not rock anchors but but they wanted us to drill starters into sandstone all around the building it was a site in bondi and i'm like what is this for that the building's not going to blow away what is happening i've never seen anything like it sure starters fight like i understand you need to but a meter and i'm like why is it like i questioned the engineer and he said yeah it's because it's cantilevering and i'm like it's cantilevering at the very end of the building and yet you're like i don't realize what had happened he just put that common detail all through
0: yeah well and that's that's the shocker isn't it that's that's the the one-size-fits-all approach yeah i like i i sometimes get quite cranky when i i see that philosophy rolled out in design you might be doing a suspended concrete slab and, and you work out the biggest span and it might be that, you know, that there's a huge span over the combined uh, kitchen dining room downstairs and you have to size the slab to, to make that big eight metre span. So you end up with a 250 thick slab or something like that. And then when you go around the rest of the house, the spans are much smaller. So you should really be optimising your slab and, and thinning it. And that results in less concrete. It results in, in less reinforcement, uh, less weight that goes down to the buildings and if you're a good engineer and, and you're, you're op- looking to optimise all that sort of stuff, you'll tailor the design to ultimately save money. And I, I do get a bit cranky when I see engineering drawings that just sort of design for the worst case the big span and then put the blanket concrete thickness all the way across. And you, you'll see that in timber framing plans as well. You know, I've 240 joists at, at 450 centres throughout the entire house. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter whether they're spanning two metres or, or five metres and and that's that's where a good engineer really should be adding value. I think some engineers are perhaps guilty of, of forgetting, the, you know, the, overlooking the fact that what we put in our drawing, ultimately someone has to pay for. And in the case of, of houses, you know, the playground I think you and I play in the most, um, poor old uh, Mar and Parkettle, mum and dad are going to get hit with the bill at the end of the day. And I, I think it's it's our job as engineers to try and um, reduce the <laughs> reduce the whack on that.
1: And what is the biggest variability? Because, you, I mean, most engineers use software these days and I guess their experience levels differ. Some engineers will be very careful, whereas others, particularly more experienced guys, will go, no, no, that'll be be fine. I know that'll work. What makes for a good engineer?
0: Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's interesting. Look, you're right. I mean, software and analysis software is certainly a major part of the design office these days. There's not too many of us left doing hand calcs with, with, with calculators. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, some of the software now allows us, certainly the finite element software, allows us to come up with better, more efficient structures than we could have done 20 years ago when we were using 2D methods. So you know we are actually getting some thinner slabs as a result of that, but what what's definitely been a problem and and um I've, I've you know actually delivered a couple of presentations on this for for some organizations you've got to be careful of the black box you don't want a situation where you've got engineers punching input into software, getting the output at the other end, and not really understanding what took place inside that black box and 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 knowing what levers to pull to to optimize so there's look there's certainly that's a challenge for our industry, and I think it's one that that Oh, if I'm honest, I think we're, we're struggling with. I, I think we can do better. There's no doubt about that. The other thing that's interesting when you deal with, you know, the engineer on site, it, it comes back to the business models we were talking about earlier. You really learn so much going out to site. One of the problems I think with the engineering profession is that you go off to uni, you do a four-year degree, you learn an awful lot of theory about materials, you graduate and you've got no idea how to apply that practically. You really have no clue. And you learn it by being on site. And as I say, talking to the builders, seeing the fruits of your labour come up out of the ground. And you learn more and more, the more you go to site, the more inspections you do, the more you see how builders put things together. And and the, the trouble for a lot of businesses is, and this is just my opinion, but you know I think you need to be doing that for 10 years until you, you've actually become half decent at this. I think you've got to spend 10 years on site. The Trouble with a lot of Consulting firms is that by the time you've got ten or eleven years under your belt, you've probably also moved up into a position of management, and your company's business model is such that you can't really—they can't really afford to send you to site. You know, by the time you become a senior engineer, you've typically got a higher charge out rate. Do you really want to be sending someone to site at three hundred dollars an hour just to look at a slab on ground and check off mesh? So a lot of businesses will send out their junior engineers to do those inspections. You've—you've you've got blokes that have got. Sorry, folks, forgive me, um, you know, ladies and gents with, with two, three years under their belt, only going to site and, and they don't have that level of knowledge yet. But the, the business model and the economics of it all mean that the, they're the people who typically get sent. So there is a, this little sort of funny spot in our industry where sometimes the people who really should be going to site to solve the problems are stuck back in the office. And sometimes the people we send out to site probably aren't best equipped to solve that. And, and, and that causes frustrations for the builders. And uh, I, I think you were probably diplomatic in your, in your questioning there, but I sense that you've, you've probably had those frustrating <laughs> conversations with some young engineers who, uh, who may not have had um, the best solutions at their fingertips.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is experience as well. And uh, I think most of my frustrations is really being rigid and, and kind of going, no, this is how it needs to be, but without any, and I'm, and I'm kind of going, but I've done another job with your organization and, and other jobs. And, and sure, I, I, I'm on board with, I don't want to build something unsafe, but explain why. Like, and, and there's no good explanation. It's just that that's what's come out of the computer model. Maybe they've said at times, or maybe this is what. And I'm like, well, yeah, I've, I've overheard those
0: conversations too, and I, I think that's a, that's a great shame. I, um, I think at the end of the day, a good engineer is one who understands the big picture and understands how the structure behaves. And just because you're looking at a at a model on a computer and there's a big splash of red suggesting that there's high stress somewhere, that that, that doesn't mean that globally the you know the structure's dissipating that stress and working in a, in a different fashion. So, yeah, look, you, you're right. There's, I think I think it's a shame. Um, and look, if I'm honest, I think in, in my younger years, I was probably a bit dogmatic as well. You you, you want to be seen as the person who's knowledgeable on site. When you get questioned, you you don't, you don't want to seem as though you don't know what you're talking about. And, and I suppose it's human nature to dig your heels in. And I think, again, once you've got a few years under your belt, you start to realise where there's give and where there's take and and, and where you can relax a little bit.
1: But- yeah. And I think the, the great engineers can explain to you exactly why and and can back it up with, with science and, and experience and can go, okay, this is why we need to do it this way. But what that does is give you an opportunity to solve that problem to come back so, so you can actually have a have a workshop rather than be told, no, no, it's got to be this way. You can't do it. Oh, look,
0: I, I, I love the dialogue. I love the conversations. I, I, I encourage, let's have the workshop for, for two reasons. A, as I'm talking out loud about it, I, I I might see a better way to do it. There's a good chance. It's very rare in, in our game to really be looking at a problem that someone hasn't solved at some point in the past, you know, <laughs> sooner or later there's a good chance what you're struggling with, someone's come up with a, with a solution before. So have the conversation. And, and you know, the, the builder might have done a similar detail a year ago. You might have had another job where the engineer solved it in a similar way. Have the conversation. That's really uh, nine-tenths of the way to solving
1: solving a puzzle. So we've delved deep into the, the sort of industry, <laughs> industry talk, industry uh, knowledge, but uh, just bringing it back to, I guess, core listeners or... All four of you out there we're uh, we're thinking of <laughs> I guess I'm wondering what advice you have for people choosing an engineer what what are they looking for like what is what is that because they get free quotes yeah look great great question and I think I think one of the issues
0: with and and again maybe this is just at the, the pointy end of town where where you and I work, but it, it's it's very rare for let's just call them Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, the homeowners, to, to reach out directly to an engineer. Nine times out of ten, they get in touch with an architect and then the architect is the bridge to your engineer. So it's often the architects who become the the gateway. Uh, they're the, the project managers who decide who to go out to and, and who to choose and who's best suited for the job. Sometimes, rightly or wrongly, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the, the homeowners don't have a lot of insight or intel into that. But, uh, you know, whether you are the homeowner or whether you're the architect choosing a, a, an engineer or deciding who to approach, I think there's definitely some things that you can look at to find out, well, uh, am I approaching the right people? And surely the, the first thing has just got to be runs on the board. You know, do, do you have experience in this area? If you're building a, a two-story house, don't go to a consulting firm that specializes in 10-story apartment buildings and and, and vice versa. I think... You can learn a lot by looking at engineers' drawings, something that I pride myself on and, and, and certainly therefore at Partridge as well. We, we've always you know, made a good point of, of the quality of our documentation producing a lot of drawings. And so go to the firm and say, can, can I see a sample of the drawings you did for a similar size job? And if they, if they hand over just two pages, you know, one plan and one section, that's probably not great. If they hand over... A package of 20 drawings you know you're dealing with someone who's going to take the job seriously document it properly and, and do everyone a favor certainly it's it's 30 years now since you had to just turn to the yellow pages and look up a phone number and dial someone you know we've, we've now got wonderful websites you know you've got social media a lot of firms are putting their, their projects on instagram have a look and see who's done um, something similar. And, and and as I say, just check, check the track record and, and see what, what's their bread and butter. What do they do on a daily basis? Where's their area of expertise?
1: And how important is it that your engineer has worked or, or gets on with your architect? How important is that as a factor in, in deciding which engineer?
0: Oh, look, I think we touched on it earlier. At the end of the day, it comes down to personalities. People like working with people they like. And I think if, if an engineer and architect have a a personality clash and a fallout. Well, you're probably not going to create magic together, and, and the relationship might be a short one. I, you know, I've been privileged to work on some wonderful projects where engineer, architect, and builder just collaborated so well and and you know finished the job best of friends. And you know, I've, I've got some architectural colleagues who you know, at the end of the day, I suppose you'd call them clients, but I don't see them that way. I see them as friends. We we get on well. We're like-minded, we've got a common purpose, we're trying to create the, the best result for the homeowner or the client. Ditto with builders. I think, again, we're a community and, and people tend to, you find out who you like and who you like working with and, and whatever is the basis of that commonality, whether it's a, a common purpose or a common sense of humour or whatever it might be, you, you, you find uh, the, the relationships go the distance. It, it's it's very, very rare for an architect to, always use engineering firm B, A, D, whatever. I'm deliberately trying not to name names there, but you know, <laughs> what they'll do.
1: We, we both know them though, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they do. But, but the, the point is that they don't necessarily have a relationship with engineering firm A. They have a relationship with someone in engineering firm yes, A. Yes,
1: that's right. That's important.
0: And that's the basis of
1: it. That's an important point because here's my experience of every engineering business that's got more than one person, there's such variability even within a business. So, and I guess probably even within Partridge, there's there's variability, I would assume. Although, yeah, I have to say, not just because you're here, but yeah, I think in terms of structure or structural engineering, yeah, probably consistency within Partridge has been quite exceptional but still you must have variability in there but how do you manage how do you manage that i guess
0: well it look it, it's a struggle but you know if if we we're all the same people we wouldn't be the vibrant office that we are um, you know, every company you know typically you, you you've got your people who are your, your rainmakers you've got those who you can send out to sites who who've got the gift of the gab and who can can talk to the builders you've got those who are uh, are probably better, sometimes better suited to staying back at the office and 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 doing the number crunching. You find where your where your strong suit is, and a good consulting practice will put people to work at where their strengths are. And it's the diversity of a practice that I think adds to its strength. Uh, I think if, if we were all just carbon copies of one another, it'd be a pretty boring office to work in.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I totally agree. I was more talking about the variability and the quality of the engineer and, and their their I guess their, their level of commitment, their level of skill and, and their, their reliability, I guess. Oh, look, they, they, yeah.
0: these are challenges for any business and you're right. You, you have some people who come through and, and sometimes it doesn't take long to work out, well, you know, maybe they're not in the right spot, maybe we're not the business for you. You know, we've had a few people come in who've not lasted long for, for those reasons. The senior people in the business are always working hard to maintain quality and know uh, Gosh, you know we're not perfect. No, no one is. We we've, we we pick up the occasional error or, or, or problem, and you've got to work hard to um,
1: overcome it. The important thing is to learn from it so that you don't repeat it. And what are the strategies for that quality, like maintaining that quality? What's the how, how do you do that over time, particularly? Well, I think the first thing is just be mindful of it
0: and be hands on. One thing that that's been a hallmark of. Certainly, at Partridge and, and, and other firms I've worked for, is uh, and why I've enjoyed working for them, by the way, is is because the senior personnel still get their hands dirty. You know, I, I what am I now? Twenty twenty eight years in, in the industry. In in most circumstances, that, that would make me, you know my, most of my peers are, are in managerial positions. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm a director of the business. I, I I manage, but I still get my hands dirty. Two days ago, I was climbing under a house. You know, I, I'm still on the tools designing. I'm at the coalface. And so if I'm overseeing a project, uh, the the, the onus is on me and and, and my counterparts and and colleagues in the office to keep a close watch on things. You've got to check when one of your junior staff comes to you and says, I think the answer is this. You've got to question and interrogate it. Don't just say, oh, I'm sure that's right. You're deeper into it. And that's just part of your QA to ensure that. But it it does take time and it means you can't be dismissive and it means you've got to work hard at it and and that takes time uh and that's one of the reasons why uh you know speaking very honestly and and frankly that that's why partridge's fees can sometimes be higher than our some of our competitors because our senior staff spend more time on the job and that that carries a price sorry come comes with a price tag i should say
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i guess you mentioned working with builders before so I'm curious because I've I've mentioned variability of um, engineers, variability of skill. I did want to ask you, and I'm presuming pretty safely that you've worked with amazing builders, and average builders, and, and maybe some not, <laughs> not so great. Yeah, <laughs> what is the big difference? What do the best builders do differently?
0: I think something that, that the best builders do differently is they plan they are always a step ahead they they're looking forward it sounds a bit bizarre and i don't mean it sound cheeky but you know they look at the drawings uh, <laughs> you'd be amazed how many builders just don't look at the drawings and it breaks our heart as engineers when you you spend a lot of time and you burn a good chunk of your fee to come up with an amazing detail and to draw it beautifully and you've it explained everything and uh And then you get to site and the builder's decided not to look at it and do it differently and and do it in a way that suddenly there's a problem for one way or another. Certainly the builders that just seem to get it right and have a smoother process through the the whole build are those that are planning ahead. They know their lead times. They look at the drawings. They see that there's a product that they know is going to be eight weeks on the water coming from overseas or it's going to be, uh, you know, there's a, six-week wait at the galvanizers, so they put the order in for their steel early. You'd be amazed how many builders in the last three, four months have been caught out by the long lead time for galvanising Rio. And we're getting phone calls all the time. Oh, there's a four-week wait for this. Can I do this and such and such instead? Colgal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should have bought chairs in Colgal paint about uh, four <laughs> months ago. I've been doing well. But you find the better builders don't get caught out like that. You find that they are really planning ahead, but uh, look, if, if I can sum it up in one word, it's the C word, communication. The The best builders are the ones that communicate with you. They, they get on the phone. They look at your drawings. They see a detail and say, hey, Andrew, I really like the way you've done that, but can I do this instead? I've, I've got another idea. I've, I've got this product that over from another job. Can I do this? I did this previously. And I love those conversations. I really do. I, I love the dialogue, solving a problem together, being able to bring my knowledge and experience and expertise to the problem and and working together. And a builder is welcome to ring me any hour of the day to say, hey, uh, I've got an idea. Can we do this differently? And and you solve it together. That's a good builder. What I I don't like is, is the builders who just decide to do something completely different. They don't check in with you and you get to site and you find that there's a problem. And they may not know it's a problem at that stage, but it might be something that's, Rarely do you find it's completely non-compliant, but it may not work. It may put stress on some other part of the building that suddenly is in trouble or it may cause a clash with something that was intended uh, next story up or or, or further along. So, yeah, communication just makes such a difference to the success of the the project and success of the relationship.
1: Yeah, I can relate to a lot of those and, and certainly planning. I mean, there is a cutoff, like and particularly when you shrink projects down. There's a tipping point where too much planning and over-planning can, there's a diminishing return, I guess. So it's the appropriate, yeah, I, I've always found it's the appropriate level of planning. But, but yeah, what, what about the architects? What about the best architects? What are they, I guess the best defined in the best ones that you've worked with, as opposed to the best, in best known, most admired in the industry, the, the ones that you think
0: yeah there's, there's the celebrity architects uh <laughs> and there's the other ones look I, I, again i think it comes to relationships there are some architects who you know really are at the, the pointy end of the game that they're, they're the celebrities you, you see their work they're admired widely and, and and i'm lucky enough to work with a good chunk of them and count quite a few of them as friends and i think it's it's collaboration i think you know sometimes an, an architect will come to you and say i've, I've got this idea Can it work? How do we get it to work? And you have a collaborative dialogue that's very different to the architect who comes and says, I've been employed to make it look like this, go away and make it happen. (laughs) And you're you're fine. You're pushing the proverbial uphill from the start. So I think that's an issue there. I think some architects just have a great sense of structure, something that I've seen creep into the industry a little bit over the last 10, 15 years, and maybe it's just the way the architectural training is taking place now, but there seems to be less and less of an appreciation for how gravity works. <laughs> I think <laughs> we've got a few architects coming to us with, to be quite frank, you know, very unrealistic and just simply impossible expectations of, of what sort of depth structure you need to span further distances as, as open plan living becomes you know more and more fashionable, and people want the huge eight meter by eight meter family, living room, dining room, all combined, you, know, you, you need a certain depth of structure to span that eight metres. And, and we're seeing a few architects coming to us with just no appreciation of, of the depth of structure you need to achieve that. So I think I think the good architects are the ones that just inherently either know that through experience or go away and do their homework. Something that's, that's come in in the last couple of years, which I think has been a really pleasing development, is architects engaging with us early at the pre-DA stage to do preliminary design. And that way they get a sense of how thick the transfer slab will be or or the suspended slab will be before they lock in their RLs with council. We've had a few jobs that they put the scheme in only then once it was approved by council did they get the engineer on board and suddenly they discover that the depth of structure means you no longer get the head height into the garage basement or you don't get the the really high 2.7 metre high windows that you were looking for. And you've got to go back to council with an S45 or something to um, S455 to change the levels or we'll make a change. And that's a pain
1: for everyone. Yeah, I know this. I know this well. And so I think a pleasing
0: thing has been seeing some of the more proactive and yeah, better planning architects engage us early on and get that sizing locked away before you're locked in with, with council. I think that's been a great outcome.
1: So for me, it's the same, like what we struggle with. And I guess that, that helps to have, you know, we've got a business with architects and myself as a builder and, and it's always upping the tolerance so that you've got space. I can't predict exactly what um, beam it will be or what. I, I just know it's going to be bigger than everyone presumes normally. And also, I guess, we're always suffering from – because a lot of our work is a western, particularly Balmain, and they're very narrow sites. So if you don't allow enough space in – subfloor areas suddenly your whole building's narrowing and I'm like well you got to dra- like you got to drain those areas you got to and and fit structure in and drain them and allow for whatever you're going to find in there which could be yeah. the neighbor's footings which you're not going to replace so you need you know it's just about having fat in the system and yeah I I've, I've seen I'm, I think I know a few that you you might be talking about. Maybe, maybe not. We won't we won't <laughs> mention any names. There's no tolerance for anything, even box gutters. <laughs> it's super tight. Well,
0: <laughs> the, the other thing too is, is is look. Maybe it's just the nature of the game, but but we find we're often asked to quote on a project and get involved off drawings that are very very preliminary. Like you, you might get the basic DA drawings to to quote for a job and DA drawings are deliberately vague. So you don't have enough rope to hang yourself with. They're there to, to get it through council and, and not show too much detail. And it's amazing how often the day it comes out of council, the architect says, right, can you start work? And, and you start designing it straight away and you come up with your thicknesses and you get a design and you think you've got it working and you send back your, your, your you know your first draft. And only then do they tell you. Oh, by the way, we're going to have recessed blind pelmets up into the slab. So sorry, you got to take a <laughs> chunk out of your concrete. Oh, by the way, we're having the are windows, so uh, you know we can only have a, a deflection tolerance of ten mil. Can you build that in, please? Oh, and by the way, the bathroom—it's it's not going to have a regular bathtub. It's going to have a huge spa that weighs three times as much. And and you you tend to find out these things much further and later down the track, which means often a lot, a lot of. Um, backpedaling or, or suddenly the, the design that did work at council may not once you take those in, things well, in account. Well, so. I can
1: say you've de- you definitely work with architects. <laughs> That's
0: yes. <from> That's <laughs> <laughs> not even the architects, to be fair. I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes our clients are the mums and dads and they're in the middle of a build, their builder has just finished the first floor slab and then they watch grand designs that night and see something amazing and they race around to site the next day and say to the builder, oh, can you do this instead? And I mean, I have had that horrible situation where we just poured the concrete and it was to hold up a a bathroom and the client just decided to change it to a massive spa bath that that weighed more than the the slab could take. So, you know, you've got to work around those challenges too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there should be a blackout on grand design when you're building your house. You should just have a media blackout and... (laughs) Oh, I've had, I mean, I've had that. I, I know this. I know this so well. Oh, we've just been to Japan and and we saw this. And we want. And I'm like, oh, okay, but you know that we're uh, we've already ordered this and that, and you know, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. And I guess I wanted to know how. I, I mean, we know that everything's in CAD and computer, and and it's it's all. Computers measure everything, but what's the future like? Because AI had a minor explosion at the end of last year, early this year, like, and it feels like it's heading somewhere where it's, um, will be. Well, I don't know anything about AI and engineering, but certainly when I project what I'm seeing into architecture and design, yeah, it feels like something's going to change and it's a matter of when. Is that the same for what's what's changing in uh, engineering?
0: I I agree with you. Uh, you, You'd you'd be stupid to think that the industry is not going to embrace it in some way down the track. I mean, uh, the last 30 years, the last three decades has just been a a continuing growth uh, cycle of of, of computers creeping more and more into how we do things Uh, from CAD. uh, from, From the engineering point of view, we we went from using slide rules to calculators to spreadsheets to now very powerful programs. I think we've gone from drawing on the board with the old drafting, you know, machines and pens and, and pencils to CAD. You know, CAD was very basic in its early days with you know AutoCAD then became very powerful. We've now moved to 3D packages and, and, and modeling and doing getting amazing renders. Revit is uh Getting an increasing toehold, not so much in the housing side of things, but certainly in, in, in bigger structures. So when you look at that progression, you'd be mad to think it's not going to continue. Quite what shape that takes down the down the track, I don't know. Will AI one day completely re- replace an engineer? <laughs> Probably. I hope, hope not. <laughs> if it can hold out for another fifteen years just till I retire, that'd be great. But yeah, I, I don't know. It, 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 technology, it's always increasing. It's always becoming more prevalent and Clever builders, clever architects, and, and clever engineers will learn to embrace it to to get better outcomes.
1: Yeah, and I and I'm wondering how long till the architect just creates the engineering for a structure good enough that your role is really to sign it off and test it rather than to design it. Like it feels like it shouldn't be that far because you're kind, maybe not in a sophisticated way. But in a in projects that where it hardly matters whether you have a two hundred and fifty beam or a three hundred beam, you'd think that's not too far away. Oh,
0: look, I, I, I suspect you're right. That's that's why I've got a side hustle, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I'll,
1: well, I'll be, be slipper seated one day. The <laughs> whisk being the whiskey, or uh, yeah, that's yeah. it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're um you're leaving Partridge. After a of a long time, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's no secret now. I've I've been there eighteen years. Um as we said at the start, I I, I was employee number fourteen or fifteen when, when we start I started there. It's now a, an organisation that's seventy five people thereabouts, with with three offices in, in Melbourne, Sydney and, and, and Newcastle. And it's a it's a very different business um to, to the one I, I joined. I mean I, I was part of a leadership group that that grew it to this stage. But uh yeah, look it's 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 a a business and an operation that just the nature of it now doesn't gel with me as as, as well and I'm, I'm looking for a new coalface and new challenges i, I think I've, I've run my race and i, I want to i still want to play in the same playground and, and and do what i love doing i'll still be a design engineer i'll still be working on on houses quite where and with whom uh, i'm not sure yet i've got uh, I'll, I'll be where i am till the end of the year and, and 2024 will be a chance to take a a well-earned break uh, my second child's just doing her hsc at the moment so i'll have both kids out of school at the end of this year and uh that creates um some opportunity having paid the last set of school fees now i can put that towards a holiday
1: rather than school fees (laughs) yeah yeah so that's the gap year that you missed
0: yeah exactly so
1: all all those years ago
0: my wife and i will will take some time off and travel for a bit come back at some point next year and uh i don't know maybe, maybe i'll start shopping my CV around to um, some of the my many friends in the industry with whom I've been competing against for the last 18 years. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's watch, great.
1: Watch this space. We'll be watching. So that sort of rounds us out. We try and have three um, key takeaways for the episode, I guess, in terms of, I guess, for, for our listeners who are about to engage, have will be engaging with, with an engineer, What what are your free, key ideas key takeaways first of all
0: when you're comparing quotes from an engineer make sure you're comparing apples with apples you know interrogate why engineer a is cheaper or more expensive than engineer b you know what what why is that what are you getting with one that you're not getting with another what what services are included will they roll with the punches if there are design changes will they accommodate them up to the point or are you going to get hit with a variation every time you make a a, a change yeah, just just understand and interrogate those quotes uh, so you get everyone on a level playing field because you rarely will be. I think that's one key takeaway. I think the second one is engineers, builders and architects are always learning. And I don't care whether you've been in the game for 10 years, 30 years or or 50 years, you're always learning. You always can learn. Don't shut yourself off to, to other players in the industry. I think Builders can teach engineers plenty of things and vice versa. Architects form part of that loop as well. I think we're all part of a wonderful community, a a trinity, if you like, of of, of people involved in the game to eventually deliver a a wonderful house. Uh, At the end of the day, I think we we lose sight of the fact that we're the team players that give Mr and Mrs Smith their dream house. You know, they've been dreaming of this amazing house. They're going to bring their kids up in it. The three of us, engineer, architect, builder, have a chance to really – make some magic together and and deliver a fantastic product. So um, we're always learning and we should be prepared and and open-minded to listen to each other's opinions and point of views to make that happen. And the third thing is the construction industry is perhaps the most poignant and appropriate place and situation where you get what you pay for. So keep that in mind with every decision along the way.
1: That's the same as number one. Hang on a minute. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, not, 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 not just for the consultants, yeah, but yeah. With,
1: with the products, uh, with the time. I was going to pick up on your, um, your second point because we, I guess, one of the innovations, one of the transformative innovations that I've come up with is to combine a building company with an architecture company. And so we're, and we've found that people enjoy that better, but also people are conditioned to buy. Cars from one place, not separate bits of car from different places. So it's a whatever. It's it's really an anomaly I found to be buying services from different places or different people and putting them together yourself as a customer. I mean, it's it's quite. I I don't know any other industry that that really does that. So I'm wondering if there's if the future of building, particularly with technology and Integration is actually companies that do the lot in-house.
0: Oh, look! I think it's an overwhelming experience, and and you know, I I've, mean, I've, my wife and I have built our own house twice now, and uh it's overwhelming. And I think if if you're offering a service that simplifies that process, if you can offer the building and the consulting and the architecture under the one roof, and and you know, cut out another level of, of complexity and consultant and, and so on. Um, I think you're doing everyone a favor. I, I, I love your business model. I think what you guys are doing is great. And, uh, I suspect there'll be, um, a growing number of, of firms looking to do that. And look, we, we, we saw this within Partridge as well. Uh, when I started there, we were just a structural engineering firm and we would lose quite a few projects to firms that could also offer the stormwater hydraulic design to the point where I, I actually got sick of losing jobs. I. I took the bull by the horns and, and was pretty instrumental in, in forming um, a hydraulic stormwater wing to, to our practice. And that meant we could certainly do both disciplines under the, under the one roof. And that made it a lot easier for architect- architects. suddenly started bringing us more work because they didn't have to deal with two consultants. They could deal with one. And the other thing it did internally is that it tremendously boosted the skill set and knowledge of all all of us as structural engineers we suddenly had a much greater understanding and appreciation for drainage and waterproofing issues and and the like because uh, we were sitting right next to the the crew of people that were looking after that so they they improved our skill set we improved theirs and um, as you say just courtesy of your own business now I'm sure now that you've you've got architects under your roof you've got a much greater understanding and appreciation for some of those architectural things and i dare say as a builder you've taught them a thing or two along the way as well so certainly that having those extra skills under the one roof is it it can only be a good thing
1: yeah no absolutely and i and i think there's no going back for us like it's, it's it seems illogical to even think like that and i mean we still help people who just need building services but yeah i think we're uh we feel like we were compelled to do that because that's what clients needed. They didn't want to deal with different people. And from my perspective, I just got tired of being asked to, "Hey, Kit, do you do design as well?" And I just said, "Yes, we do."
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I, I I commend you. As I say,
1: you, you you saw a need, you responded. That's um, more power to you. Andrew, thank you so much. Oh, hang on. What? how can listeners get in touch with Andrew i'm just reading my show notes uh just, <laughs> <laughs> uh they can get in touch i guess with, with Partridge if they. well if look they, uh, for
0: for the next 4 months i'm i'm still at Partridge so uh yeah you'll you'll, you'll find us there we're we're on the web um give us a call <laughs>
1: yeah okay Andrew it's been a, it's been a pleasure thank you so much
0: thanks Matt Re- really appreciate the opportunity for a chat and uh, talk shop for a bit
1: yeah and i'm hanging out for yeah i'm um, I'm hoping you mean it when you said that I've got a chair at the whiskey tasting because I'm I'm there like I I don't need keep September
0: the 15th free my friend uh...
1: September the 15th All <laughs> right I'll 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 see what's uh, what's penciled in and hopefully not much <laughs> why what's on September the 15th
0: Ah oh, a, a, a fantastic tasting in the city with with your name all over
1: it Okay All right well uh unless there's something catastrophic happening that that is a catastrophic clash consider me there uh, yeah, that sounds great. So thank you again. No, thank, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks to our listeners. And we'll have a link to Partridge Partners and we'll have a link to Whiskey. And we we'll would invite you to join our community by subscribing on mailing list. And the link can be found in the show notes. Thank you. Till next time, goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Buildipedia. Please remember to like us and share our episode with your friends. We'd love your comments and suggestions. And we have a new website, buildipedia.au, where you can get in touch or leave a question and check out our blog.